I miss you baby Yeah beautiful words I love falling asleep now though When I listened to that the first time I felt the same way I want to stay awake But now I'm tired I want to close my eyes Power Bell of Friday The song was written for the 1998 disaster movie Armageddon Starring Bruce Willis And at the end of the video The screen goes out as tearful grace From Liv Tyler Touches one of the monitors to reach out to her dad The whole world is exploding From a big meteor shower but it's actually okay because Aerosmith is playing in the background. Yeah. So yeah. It's like the, the the band on the Titanic. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's not like that. No, <laughs> no. It's um, quite quite the song. It brings back memories. Um, what year did you say? 97? Yeah, 1998. Armageddon. I don't know whether or not you've seen that film, uh, Ella Henry, Armageddon, starring Bruce Willis. I, I did, but yeah. I, I have to say that I didn't listen to a lot of music in the 90s. I was no. too busy trying to raise small children without yeah. without paid <laughs> parental leave. Uh. <laughs> it, would, it would just be the local radio station or something like that. Yeah. Uh, very good. All right, the panel, RNZ National 24 to 5, uh, Dr. Ella Henry and Alan McRoy with me this afternoon. What a huge response to this. Let's just bring uh, – uh, oh, actually, just jumping into um, quite a lot on party lines too. Wallace, our phone number was 71S till 1982. Three on our party line could only call between 6 a.m. and 10 p.m. Uh, rural Whanganui in the 70s, full stop, our whole road had a party line in Brunswick. Full stop, our ring was long, short, short. If someone else picked up the call when you were on, the phone you just said working and they hung up. So you said working and they hung up. Does that sound right, Ella? Well, that's a good theory, but if you have sneaky aunties that live around the corner sometimes, <laughs> you know, you'd say working, but you could still hear them breathing. <laughs> They're still on the line. Um, what exactly. A, what, a, what a response. So the panel poll, the results coming through in a minute. Uh, yes or no to banning uh, personal private personal fireworks. Um, we'll touch the subject once and once only. No, do not 
ban them at all. In fact, bring back the poha and the skyrocket and encourage and restore that practice of safe personal fireworks. Yes, ban them. Injuries, fire, risk, bad for animals. I grew up in Queensland and fireworks were banned in the 70s under Joe Bjelke-Peterson. Hardly a hotbed of progressive thinking. It's extraordinary. Um, I don't consider myself to be a killjoy, but private fireworks are abusive. They're fire danger, a danger to pets, and most of all, they are lame. There's nothing like the sonic boom when sitting under a good display. The local speedway in Christchurch is the best one I've seen. It sells out every year. I'm 48, but still love a fireworks display and the window seat on the airplane, says Shane. So to that, earlier in the week we had... Cindy Mitchell on the show, and her I've been thinking was fireworks should be banned except for public holidays. Sorry, displays rather. The last attempt to ban fireworks was in 2020 when a ban was ruled out by the Select Committee. As November the 5th approaches, has moved to ban lost momentum. With us is Will Appleby, the Head of Investigations at Safe for Animals. Will, kia ora. Kia ora, Wallace. Good to be here. Yes, yeah, nice to have you on. And look, we time and time we discuss this, and I promised our wonderful audience we'll discuss it once and once only. Where does SAFE stand on this? Yeah, so, I mean, this has been pretty well-traversed um, topic for, for many New Zealanders. Mm. Um, the, the, the risks of um, fireworks are pretty well-known. Um, you know, they pose a risk to the environment, obviously. They propose a risk to property with um, with fires, um, but also to animals. Um, and, that's, and, there's, and there's a range of issues and the range of impact it can have on animals, number one being fear for cats and dogs and livestock can cause a significant amount of fear. Um, for horses, that can actually be quite deadly. Um, uh, there's been cases where horses have become so fearful that when fireworks have been set off, they've begun running um, and injured themselves um, on, on, on fence posts and the like. Um, also causes a lot of fear and harm to wild animals as well. So there's a range of impacts. Um, the use of fireworks has been restricted more and more over, over many years. Um, for example, when I was young, um, you could be as young as 16 and buy them um, over a, a two-week period. Really? Um, yes, you see. I remember you, you'd be able to buy them, you know, uh, I remember being a 16-year-old and you could buy them. Um, obviously, they've restricted that now. It's over 18-year-olds and it's still, and it's only between a couple-day periods, the 2nd of November to the 5th of November. The problem there is there's nothing stopping anyone from stockpiling fireworks. So um, that's why we support a ban on the sale of fireworks to the public, um, right. limiting their use only to professional displays. Um, that way there can be much greater controls put around their use. What do you say to those? And It's quite a thread coming through. We'll have the poll results. Very very shortly for you. Um, that, 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 look, this is this is, um, for want of a bit of a word, a, a phrase rather, an attack on personal freedoms. We grow up with our tom thumbs. We grow up with our pohas, our skyrockets. Um, it, it was up to the parents to supervise. Um, it's just a great way for family to get together in the backyard. Mm. Yeah, and I, I can understand that, that line of reasoning. Um, the thing is that public support is pretty on side. Um, the ban of fireworks to, to, to the public, the sale, the sale of fireworks to the public. Um, 
It's very difficult to for people who have animals, companion animals, or people who look after livestock to um, really account for the use of fireworks in their neighbourhood because they don't really know when they're going to be set off. Um, you know, no one does a consultation around their neighbourhoods um, before they um, set off fireworks. Um, so by limiting the use only to professional displays and requiring them only uh, requiring them to, to notify members of the public, then that gives people who do have animals greater awareness and control so they can make arrangements before um, that time approaches. Okay. Um, yeah. Alan, uh, um, um, Alan, starting with you. Yeah, I I do agree with you, I think, because a lot of people are idiots. I know people have great memories of using them in the back garden, but there are people that will use them irresponsibly. Uh, so I, I, I do reluctantly kind of agree that, save it for professional displays. Okay, that's a yes. Yeah, I think so. Or else, like, is there another option where, and this will annoy people, a licence? Like, if, if, if you are trusted to put on a, a safe fireworks display, you have to apply for a licence and then you can only buy them. You know, like... All right. Stand by, Will. I want to tell you the results in um, uh, one minute's time. Let's bring Ella in as well. Uh, yeah, look, <clears throat> this has been a bone of contention with me for some time. I don't know why in New Zealand in the 21st century we're even remembering Guy Fawkes. I mean... Who was he? What did he do? The average New Zealander doesn't know, so there's that. Um, but I have to say that as I get older, I agree more and more with the idea of having only um, a professional. I love watching them. They're fabulous to watch. But professional yeah. Uh, yeah. extravaganzas rather than little insane pyromaniacs in the backyard. <laughs> okay. On that, so that's a yes to both. Will, Will do you want to hear something? Go on, I'd love to. Snap panel poll. Um, I thought it'd just be a handful this afternoon, but we've uh, thanks to my wonderful producer Sally Sally Ward, who has been busy all hour compiling um, a, a very large response from across the country. And here is the snap panel poll mm. this afternoon: um, Should New Zealand ban personal fireworks displays? Ninety-two percent said yes. Mm. That surprises yeah. me, Will. Oh, I massive. thought it would be pretty even, but that's extraordinary. Yeah, and I'm, to be honest, I'm not overly surprised by that figure. Um, when this issue went to the Select Committee back in about 2019, there were three separate petitions all asking for a ban on the sale of fireworks to the public. The overwhelming um, um, majority of the, of the submitters all supported a ban, including the likes of SAFE, the SPCA, but as, uh, local government New Zealand, um, obviously fire and emergency, they care about this a lot. Um, when it went to the Auckland Council, they voted on this um, a couple of years ago to um, call on the government to make moves towards banning um, the sale of fireworks to the public. So, um, yeah, I mean, there is a lot of public support here. Um, all right, let me ask issue. you then, what's the hold-up? What's the hold-up? We've been talking about this for years. If Joe if Joe, if Joe Bielke Peterson can do it in Queensland in the seventies, what's stopping us? Yeah, uh, a, a lack of um, political willpower, I think. To be honest, um, when it did go to the select committee, it largely fell on deaf ears, and they didn't re- recommend the government to um, take any action on this. Um, I think it's honestly just fallen down the priority list um, for, for, for governments of all stripes, um, which mm. is quite frustrating because. 
there is there is uh, there's a mandate here. There's consensus here that this ought to be happening. All right. Well, we're getting some extraordinary um, texts and emails from veterinarians, uh, and um, I, I said well, we won't return to it. We won't. But um, I'd love to read some out at some stage. But for now, Will Appleby, kia ora. Thank you for your time. Uh, that's uh, Will Appleby. He's the head of investigation that's safe for animals. So recapping that again, uh, our last and only time that we're going to be doing this topic uh, this year, uh, 92% of panel listeners who uh, uh, decided to engage with this panel poll said yes to banning uh, personal fireworks. Yeah, uh, The panel, uh, RNZ National, good to have you here. Well, what does it take to make a song political? When you think about it, quite a few examples come to mind. There is no depression in New Zealand. There are no sheep on our farms. There is no depression in New Zealand. There is no depression in New Zealand sung ironically there. Well, our next guest says there isn't such an overt strand of politically oriented songs today, but... The political songs have become ever more personal and has looked at both the way songs have been adopted by politicians and songs with a political bent. This from a newsroom piece. Thought it worth bringing it to your attention post-election. With us is Dr. Alicia Ward, School of Music uh, from the University of Auckland. Dr. Ward, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. When I think of it, I'm fascinated by politics uh, and songs because uh, at first, top of mind, I think, oh, we don't have them. You know, you think of your first that you think of uh, that song there, or you think of "Blowing in the Wind" by Bob Dylan back in the sixties, <laughs> and uh, you know, nothing these days. But actually, I'm quite wrong, aren't I? I'm afraid you are. There's a lot of political music out there. Yeah. So can you can you cite a local example? Well, I mean, Tom Scott, um, he is basically single-handedly um, responsible for this entire subgenre of John Key satirical songs and songs indicting John Key. Oh, that's right. And there was that guitarist, Darren Watson, too. He did a, yep. he did a satirical song, didn't he? Um, mm-hmm. there, and I guess we have a history, don't we? I mean, I, a, a, a well-known example, a wonderful track uh, is... French letter by Herbs. Yes. yes, absolutely. I mean, that really does stand out as a prime example of political music from the early 1980s. It is a, a glorious piece that it, it sounds like this lovely South Seas fantasy pop ballad when you start listening to it. Can you see yourself under a coconut tree? Yeah. But then when you hit the chorus, you've got this beautifully arpeggiated, no nukes, no nukes, no nukes, no nukes. <laughs> um, and then there's um, uh, quitte la Pacifique, uh, you know, get out of the Pacific in French. And it just like, it just punches you in the gut. It's turned <laughs> from this beautiful pop ballad to the super political song. Oh, it's such a great track. Ella Henry, let's bring you in. 
Absolutely. I mean, I, and I think, you know, because I've always loved political music, I mean, right back to Woody Guthrie and mm. his, you know, poetry uh, against poverty in America, um, all of the feminist music that's ca- that started to come out in the 60s. I am woman is political, mm-hmm. um, you know, up against the wall, mother effer, uh, you know, <laughs> the stuff that came out <laughs> in the 60s in America. Um, and then our own uh, Maori music, which in itself mm. is political because it's been part of the mm-hmm. revitalization of the language and the culture. So I love political music. <laughs> and of course, um, stay, stay there, Alicia. And of course, uh, you being from Ireland, uh, Ellen, there's a little bit of a history of um, uh, political music and Irish music as well, going right back, I oh, guess. Does, does, the songs, you know, songs that are now, they're trying to ban people from singing in the stands, like Zombie by Cranberries, the, the rugby fans were singing, and there's people kicking off back home saying you can't be singing that because it references the Troubles. Uh, so there is a lot, and there's, there's the Rebel songs as well, uh, uh, Nation Once Again, uh, a lot of those uh, songs and, and uh, Celtic Symphony, the Irish ladies football team were singing that and they got in trouble for singing some of those words. But Bono has ruined all political songs for me. Uh, if I have to listen to him, drib- I walked out of concerts, so it's I'm done. I can't listen to it anymore. He has ruined it for me. And this is you as an Irish person saying this? Yes, absolutely. And I won't be the only one. <laughs> he just dribbles on. Dr. Alicia Ward, well, you're a musicologist. Bono ruining it? Oh, I think that one's down to a personal preference. <laughs> <laughs> there are going to be some people out there who really do love the way he speaks no. uh, to politics. No. <laughs> Rob, like I said, it comes down to personal preference. Yeah. Rob says, <laughs> Rob says um, a, a big ups to Upper Hutt Posse, the treaty will not go away. Yes. Let me ask, ask you this, uh, Alicia. Would you, do you, would you support musicians out there, musicians in Aotearoa and around, to take a stand, uh, or, or to use a phrase leveled at the Dixie Chicks and became a movie, shut up and sing? Music has always been political. Has it, though? Yeah. Because you go back, way, way back. I'm talking like 12th century way back. You have the bardic traditions. You have the jongleurs, the people who are travelling around spreading news and events, and they're offering opinions on that news and events. So it's always been political. There has been music that has been suppressed by organisations, all types of organisations, religious organisations, political organisations. How is that not political music? Whether you intend your song to be political or not is always another matter. I mean, a great example of this from the jazz world is um, Charles Mingus. So much of his music is considered political, but he was like, I wasn't thinking about politics when I wrote this. I'm just writing from the heart. Fables of Forbes is a great example of that. It's a, a damning indictment of um, the anti-segregationist mm. movement in the US. Um, and um, oh, Alicia, I'm going to I'm going to have to do a part two. On I'm finding that so interesting. Absolutely. You're going to have to come on back on the panel and do a part two. No, seriously, it's really fascinating. Um, I really appreciate your time this afternoon. Um, uh, Alicia Ward there from the School of Music so all music is political how extraordinary 
all music, even Except the cheeky girls touch my bum. I, I don't know who they are. Oh, but, don't. Uh, what, who, who, what, what would you say to Bono uh, if you met him in, a, in an Irish pub? I'd be friendly. I'm a nice guy. You know, so, uh, do you want a point? Sit down and have a chat. But don't bring up politics. There's no need. There's no need. <laughs> the panel, RNZ National, uh, Alan McRoy and Ella Henry today. Finally on this programme, such a New Zealand story, such a history. Who doesn't have a crown Lynn swan in the back of that cupboard? <laughs> Who doesn't have a dinner plate in 70s brown, full of brown flowers? Crown Lynn, a history of West Auckland. For 50 years, it was the largest ceramics producer in the Southern Hemisphere. Well, not long to go before a special collector's market for Crown Lynn lovers. With us is Louise Stevenson from Te Toyuku, Crown Lynn and Clayworks Museum. Kia ora, Louise. Wallace. Well, it's lovely to have you on. You know what? I was actually stunned to hear of the scale of Crown Lynn. It was enormous. I mean, if you think that for four decades it was in our homes, hotels, hospitals, yeah. Air New Zealand flights, yes. on the railways, um, <laughs> it's a big part of who we are as New Zealanders. I'm, I'm, um, and the production was enormous. I'm kind of laughing because I recognise the Crown Lynn, you know, going right back to my childhood. You say it is a real strong Māori and Pacifica lens to the Crown Lynn story too. Yes, there is. Um, and it's something that as a museum we're just beginning to um, get into the research now. So um, the workforce on the factory floor during the 60s and 70s were, were mainly Pacifica and Māori. And um, we haven't really heard their story. So um, as a museum, it's a major project that we're embarking on at the moment to yeah. to hear those voices and hear what that experience was, were, experience was like to come from the islands to work on the factory floor here. Very cool. Island. Yeah, and on that, there is, if you look up, if you do a search at RNZ site uh, and programs, there is a wonderful hour-long uh, visual doco called Crown Lynn, uh, a Māori story. But, yes. uh, but Ella, the history of Crown Lynn, it touches every family's dinner table, huh? So so my family came to Auckland in 1960. I was six years old. My father went to work at Ashley's Tanneries and my mother oh, wow. and all my sisters went to work at Crownland Potteries. Oh. And when they oh. and when they, turf, when they turfed me out of Kelston Girls High School at 15 years, my first job was at Crownland Potteries and I lasted one whole week. Because <laughs> clearly I was a rat bag even in 1969. But I... I still have, I mean, basically, uh, where we came from in Kaitaia, we lived on Pukapuru Road, and all of Pukapuru Road came to New Lynn in 1960. The men all went to work either at Brick and Pipe or Ashley's Tanneries, oh. and the women all went to work at Crown and Potteries. We just we, we just brought the village to West Auckland. Isn't this amazing? Louise, this is, this is Alice history. Yeah, that, that is absolutely it. And there's thousands of kilometres of clay pipes under the ground throughout New Zealand and bricks that were used um, to build buildings in, in towns throughout New Zealand. And, of course, the crockery that we all ate and drank from and, you know, used in our homes. So, yeah, it's a rich story. Um, well, and everybody's 
Yeah, it's, to it's a rich joy for us, but my wonderful Irish friend here, he's he's looking at me going, I've got nothing. I've I've no I've Googled it. They look lovely. They look like lovely plates. I've never seen it, I've never heard it before. It's a lovely story, but I I've nothing to add to this conversation. They look I'd love to have my dinner off it. Uh, I'm sure it'd be a wonderful uh, experience, but I've nothing. They look pretty. Um just just remind me, in fact uh, Hamish the antique dealer says every buying trip I do a swan. Um is there much of a clickers community, Louise? Sorry, what's that? Is, is, there... is there much of a Crown Lynn collector's community? Oh, huge. Huge mm. collector's community. Um, I mean, you know, there's several different Facebook pages where people are, um, you know, really delving into the details around um, Crown Lynn products um, that go right the way back into the 1940s and some people have enormous amount of knowledge around you know what was actually produced out there but I, I kind of think of the collectors as being in two camps there's your casual op shopper which is kind of what I would name myself um, and then there's also the serious collectors um, that really understand a lot more around the, Louise the, um, production. what's as a serious collector what's a top end piece of crownland worth Oh, goodness. As a museum, we always say we don't deal with valuations. Come on. Um, I know that the uh, swans go for thousands, um, particularly what? black swans. Um, and if you're going for a piece that was made by some of the um, designers right the way back, like Frank Carpi, um, that's definitely in the thousands, and they're quite rare and hard to come by. Um, they <gasps> They'll be, you know, in a web's auction. Here we so, go. Um, Panel yeah. listener, I sold a piece for $4,000. What? I'm looking at trade me now under $20. What am I getting wrong here? <laughs> <laughs> Louise, Kira, yeah. thank you for your time. We'll, um, we'll tell you when the collector's market is on on mm. Monday. But for now, Dr. Ella Henry, Ella McEnroy, fantastic. Have a great long weekend, both of you, and to the panel family across the country. Thanks for listening this week. I'm Wallace Chapman. See you tomorrow. Ooh, sorry, Tuesday, 3.45. Lisa Owen and Checkpoint is next.